Hello there. You're listening to Sasitap podcast by Sashwat and Oscar, where you speak with startup founders, venture capitalists, and some of the leading talents in the world. We listen to their personal journeys and share their stories that shape their worldview. Hello, everyone. We have Alizi Ditona, who is based out of Geneva. Alizi graduated from HEC Lausanne and obtained her master in international management at Bocconi University with highest honors. She lived eight years in Singapore and two years in Silicon Valley. She worked as a product manager for luxury brands at L'Oreal Group and was part of the Italian team at Voyage Prime. After traveling for a year around the world to set up the first edition of Seedstar World, Alizi is now managing the company and taking it to the next level. Welcome to our show, Alizi. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you and great story as well, Alizi. I would just love to know a little bit about your origins of Seed Stars as well. How did your first origin of that idea came to your head? I mean, was that traveling across different geographies or how did it actually originate? So it was really my co-founders who had already launched several businesses themselves and wanted to really incubate their own businesses and kind of find a methodology to do that at scale. And quickly, when I joined the group Seed Stars and my co-founders, we wanted to just understand what entrepreneurs like ourselves were doing around the world. And so uh, we did our first world tour and that vehicle to build the network was a startup competition. And in doing the travels, we realized it became so obvious for us that we should be only focused on emerging markets and these emerging startup ecosystems. And it's true, it was even more gratifying to be able to help entrepreneurs and the solutions they were trying to build on the ground in these markets. So that's when Seedstar's really mission shifted completely to having an impact in emerging markets through technology and entrepreneurship. And I think you always have that Mexican proverb, right? They yeah. tried to bury us. They didn't know we were seeds. Uh, so I was in Mexico last last year, and that was the first time actually I got to know about Seedstar <laughs> as well. And I know that you've traveled multiple countries, I mean, more than 50 odd countries. So how did this change you in your personal life as well? Yeah, I think it was a very humbling experience. And I thought I was a very exposed person in the sense that I grew up in Singapore and, and traveled in different countries. And, and with my parents, I was able to travel quite a bit, but it was never on my terms. And I think the moment that I started traveling on my terms and it became embedded in the mission that Seed Stars had and has, it's a very humbling experience because, so I think it also goes with my age. I think I was 23 when we started, but what you thought was black and white, everything becomes gray. There is no right answer. There is no one way to live life. There is no one way to love. There is no one way to build a business. And that experience, Exposure to these different cultures, way of being, way of doing was extremely humbling and seems to me now fundamental in anyone's growth to keep that openness. So it's a big pivot in my life and it's something I, I really believe is fundamental for any human being to want to grow. Alisa, you have a very interesting philosophy you follow. You say, do one thing every day that scares you. It's a quote by Elenio Roosevelt. And I mean, traveling all across the globe is on the one hand, a humble experience, but on the other hand, it's very scary, right? How did you implement this <laughs> yeah. quote in your daily life? Like, what were the things you do every day that really scares you? 
Yeah, so it's funny because as you, the more you travel, the more you become entrepreneurial, which were scarier elements to me at the beginning, actually become comfortable to you. I really trying to instill a habit, which is a lifetime practice of being comfortable with the uncomfortable, because the most amazing opportunities have usually been the scariest ones. So that's really something I try to push. And I think the best way I have put myself in uncomfortable positions in quite a frequent way, maybe not every day, is by surrounding myself with people that push me. That has been my way of making it more or less of a habit is making sure my close surrounding of people that I believe I'm really the sum of these people are ones that push my intellectual, spiritual, physical boundaries. That's interesting because, I mean, just as you said, who wants to do something that's scary to you, right? You want to be in your bubble. <laughs> you want to do the easy stuff basically in your life. I think that's interesting that you say, okay, you need the right people in your life that really push you to get you to the next level because otherwise you might not have the motivation to do it yourself, right? No, no. And I'm still someone that's quite driven by external factors, which is really not good. By being stronger with my own self and my own confidence, I really needed as a person to have the right people to motivate me. So it's not something that you're you're born with, let's say, or one is born with, with that mentality to do the scary stuff. It's something that you develop over time. You have to do it every day or at least on a regular basis. And then you get to that point where you really push for that. The beauty of Eleanor Roosevelt is, so she says, do one thing every day that scares you. But actually what follows is because it is those little things in life that build the courage that you need to do the things that you have to do. And so it's fundamentally building the muscle of resilience. And that is really very tough. It was very tough for me. It's something that I've seen that I can master a bit better. But for sure, I have talents within Seed Stars and entrepreneurs I've met that either through their young life experience have been able to test and train that muscle much faster by personal experiences or being more or less pro athletes. The level of resilience is on those three axes of spirituality, physical and intellectual is, is very impressive to see. So it's really a step-by-step -step process and not something that you learn overnight, right? So when we talk about the scary stuff and the challenges facing in life, Let's talk about seed stars. What were the challenges you were facing while building seed stars or what are the current challenges you're facing? So many, <laughs> so many. <laughs> I think for like any business, we really have that ongoing, never ending challenge of talent from sourcing to retaining to motivating your talent. There are so many challenges to that and How do you really build a diverse set of individuals, which we believe will allow us to reach much higher performances, but also how do you build in a community which is really inclusive for all these types of talents is a very big challenge, especially as you're an organization that grows. And so, you know, it's really the form a storm norm. I don't know if that's the, the right way, but there's so much storm and chaos in reintegrating the right talents as you grow and transform. And so what hooked talents initially is no longer what you can use to keep them. 
And then there are challenges faced with regards to our business model, with which is really providing education in emerging markets around entrepreneurship and innovation and investing in these high growth ventures that represent these different ecosystems. Very different challenges, but again, it starts to become a routine. That's what I was saying uh, of being comfortable with the uncomfortable. You start to see a pattern as an entrepreneur that the bigger you get, the bigger the problem. It, it, it never fades away, the challenges. Let's dig a little bit around the worldview that you have. Everyone shapes their worldview based on their education, environment and experiences. Of course, you've traveled a lot. You have been scaling your company for so many years. So my question is that why emerging markets? I mean, you were with L'Oreal, you were anyways there in some of the poshest places of the world. You could have done a lot of other things as well, like, you know, following the very pro-capitalistic path of maybe venture capital, maybe other kind of avenues as well. But why typically emerging markets? Yes. Um, so I think there's a big debate on the definition of emerging markets. And there are a lot of people living in some countries around the world which don't consider themselves emerging or so. Really, honestly, eight years ago, it was why are not more people interested in this so-called rest of the world that represents over 80% of the population? For us, it's, it was so obvious that this was kind of the center of the world and this West-Rest kind of view was a bit ignorant. So there was really this, this sheer inspiration and wow effect of arriving. I mean, we were arriving in cities like Lagos, Mexico City, uh, and you're just like the momentum of the noise, the, the hustling attitude, the number of things that needed to be done and that could potentially be done differently because you didn't have the legacy the heavy infrastructure cost and even the lobbying of some strong players in, this, in certain industries. So it felt for us that, that wow effect of, wow, look at all the opportunities, the conviction that talent was everywhere. And so how could we bring another story and share another story to these ecosystems, which were viewed only on one or two indicators that the media channeled? And also they had that very kind of selfish, gratifying attitude that we felt so much better as human beings. It was very tangible, the impact and what we were building. It was kind of a no-brainer coming in. And also, yeah, embarrassed by our ignorance and lack of understanding of so many ways of living and people and needs. And so we just wanted to better understand. True. I think uh, you're right when you said that challenge is everywhere, but opportunities are very concentrated in various nodal points itself. Is your experience in maybe Lagos or maybe Nigeria really you know, transformed you to have a very specific viewpoint around social entrepreneurship, around emerging markets, etc.? Our view really shifted when we went ourselves to live in Nigeria and launch our first incubation center where we launched our own ventures. Until then, we were supporting training. We had gone to these markets. We were even investing already. But building yourself a business from the ground up in these markets was a whole other reality and better understanding of what it meant to do business, what it meant to scale in these markets, what it meant those day-to-day -day obstacles from, I mean, I remember 
not understanding the limits in the number of sales meetings per day. And then you go live the traffic, you go live the hierarchy and the traditions that go around doing business in these markets. And you, and then you figure out why. I think that really shifted a lot of our, of our understanding. But since the beginning, we were always very pragmatic about what social entrepreneurship meant. We didn't even consider ourselves an impact business or a social enterprise. People cataloged us like that, or they liked packaging us or putting us in their prizes or things like that, which was good for us in the sense it was a certain media attention. But that was very much in many ways a Western construct Whereas when you would do business in Nigeria or India or wherever, you were doing business and you were doing business to make money. The fact that most of the businesses focus on primary needs is because that's the reality. These are the, these are the immediate emergencies that need to be resolved in these markets. So we've always been very pragmatic in that definition. Now that we're growing, we want to be more accountable to our impact. We want to measure our success also in terms of impact metrics and not only financial metrics, but that's just more us growing as a business and having that level of maturity. And we would not expect that of a early stage business. You mentioned about impact metrics. Obviously, a lot of VC funded companies, maybe tech companies, uh, the theory of change, these things are not often talked about, right? In a social enterprise or in a social setup, everyone knows about the theory of change, etc. Could you give a little bit of reference into your theory of change as well for Seedstars and how it is, you know, scaling up? Yes. And to be honest, I mean, we integrated the theory of change, I think, two years ago, and it was brought in by one of our nonprofit partners that really wanted us to be much more professional in our monitoring and evaluation of our activities. And I came into the theory of change like, oh, great, another like fluffy, useless framework to please reporting for some of our partners. I'm not interested in it. So I was really, really not an early adopter. But what made the difference is I worked with this unbelievable team of women that helped shape our theory of change. And it's actually a really pragmatic approach to reflecting on what indicators do you really want to track from activity to impact that you believe is going to help you render your intended impact a reality, but also allow you to be accountable on the performance or not of that impact. And that was a game changer for us, not only to bring light to our talents on the impact that they were having, because it's super, it's not very tangible. Huh? So it's difficult also to stay motivated on a day to day because our job is, it sounds sexy by traveling and going around there, but it's most of the time in Excel and behind your computer. Huh? It was really important to showcase every talent in the company, how this activity really had a ripple effect on the long-term impact but also to push ourselves in our reflections of, is what we're doing really making a difference? Which is the big question you want to answer, which wasn't done in a very rigorous way until, until now. I think theory of change also has a strong quantitative aspect to it as well. So obviously that follows the typical tech or the VC uh, scheme of things as well. 
But yeah, coming back to communities and talent, you mentioned that keeping the talent and uh, you know growing the talent across the value chain is a difficult situation as well for you, especially when you are operating in different continents, right? Whether it's an emerging market in Southern America, like Brazil or Mexico, or maybe in Asia, India, Southeast Asia, and other major parts as well. So how do you see community building going forward as well? I mean, I am on your Slack channel in the expert network, but how do you see in the post-2021 years ahead? How do you see Seedstar's community uh, scaling up? The big, big question. <laughs> Every time now I hear community, I kind of like, friend, you know, it's, it's so difficult because we have this really... I, I'm very proud of the community we represent, and I feel like a lot of stakeholders within our communities are receiving value out of Seed Stars. The vision is that we're a platform that can really be for different stakeholders a clear value generator. May it be for you finding new clients, may it be for entrepreneurs clearly having a clear roadmap for fundraising, may it be for investors to increase their deal flow, whatever the stakeholder within the conversation of innovation and entrepreneurship in emerging markets, we would like to be that one-stop shop to build value. And we've started to see, so many people are leveraging our network. It's very difficult to track it so that we can then, you know, replicate and scale on those models. It's a very fine line of where do you monetize and if so, without the community organically breaking down, there's a limit in numbers where we've seen the best momentum in groups of a hundred maximum above that we kind of lose it. So how do you keep then these subset of groups that really build value from one another? We've seen correlations of real success with startups when there's peer-to-peer -peer learning also, there's a huge network effect and support that goes into that. But I have to be honest, uh, this is where I can't wait to see more data being collected and in a more, in a more dynamic, frequent basis so that we can continue and be that platform that is on a regular basis, a partner of yours. To collect all these data, of course, technology plays a very important role. How do you see the technology playing a part, especially in the emerging markets? Because what's happening is that in the West or in the advanced economies, the technology layers are much more stronger, especially when you are scaling up communities also, those play on those technology layers. But as opposed in the emerging markets, the technology is not a very strong multiplier in various cases. How do you see um, uh, the emerging trends of technology playing out in some of the markets that you are operating in? I think we see the huge growth opportunities and the huge limitations. So as I was mentioning before, there is really this leapfrogging effect that is taking place in these markets where we're skipping all technology movements to the next one, which are almost every time, at least with our knowledge of today, more efficient and more sustainable and less costly. We'll see if they're the stronger perverse effects over time. And that's huge because you're building from the ground up completely new industries and new jobs and new know-how, which was non-existent before. I mean, let's see the growth of e-commerce in Asia versus the growth of retail. I mean, it's just exponential. And with that came the growth of financial services. And I was reading somewhere, and I, I don't know how reliable was the source, the number of new financial, like mobile financial services is still highest in sub-Saharan Africa, which has some of the lowest literacy rate, but 
their digital literacy and their financial digital literacy is sometimes higher than what we would expect in Western countries simply because there is a huge need for these services and even offline people that have to master poverty and day-to-day financials have a, a much better acumen on all the financial possibilities and have a lower risk aversion to accessing these new financial services, which now tailor to an informal market, which are still the major markets, like major parts representing the economy. So I think in that sense, in building industries from scratch, technology has been unbelievable to shape these markets and give new opportunities. And hopefully we can see that same trajectory in key sectors like education, healthcare, energy, agriculture. I'm still wondering, what will these cities look like in 50 years? I don't know. And we want to bench ourselves with the unbelievable growth of the cities in China, but I think it's going to look different in Latin America or Africa. And so sometimes, I mean, I remember the roads of Lagos. I remember the infrastructure and I'm wondering what will be that shift? What will be that technology? And so here, yeah, the future of high tech is very much in low tech because it has to address the current infrastructure, which doesn't allow for certain technologies. So I think trends are still very similar across globally. And then, of course, where I've seen more niche trends is where government has become heavily involved. So when governments have decided to become, to make a play on medtech or on agriculture, then we see kind of a flood of capital and talent to focus on this. But I don't know how successful if, because you need huge resources to do that. And so I've seen more the GCC countries do that effectively or more mature ecosystems like Singapore, which is anything but emerging. True, true. I think the GCC countries that you referenced, right, both Kuwait, Bahrain, all these countries, the government level, they are looking into insights from Singapore for sure. Including governance is also very important for the SDGs, like the Sustainable Development Goals as well, the 17 of it. I foresee that going forward, not just governments, not just um, uh, social enterprises and impact funds, but you know there will be a lot of tech companies also incorporating the SDGs as well. Do you think that that will be possible in the coming years? There's a lot of packaging, which is fine in the sense if it can help the cause of bringing it to the mainstream, the issues of sustainability on this planet. It's a good start. Depending on with whom we speak, it's more or less effortless because, again, it's packaging. I think it's representative of the generation that is more and more taking over the decisions made be by entering politics, by starting to taking leadership roles in different size companies, but also consumers that are having a, a louder and louder voice. There is this need, and I don't know if it's our genuine interest in sustainability or the consequence of not being able to avoid the reality in front of us, that this is something that we want to be integrated seriously in how we think the economy and how we think the sustainability of the planet. I definitely see a movement within the generation that is slowly taking over, a legacy of the past generation that wants to do good. 
And it's starting to make more and more economic sense to prepare for a transformation within your company so that you can be sustainable over time. Uh, maybe we're too late, but today it seems economically sound to be reflecting in terms of sustainability and environmental safeguard so that you can perform as an enterprise in the long term. I think the beauty in emerging markets and also the tech stuff that's coming is the opportunities. Just as you said, Alisi, the opportunities we have here and the opportunities that might arise in the future. So I would love to talk more about seed stars, Alisi. You work with a lot of startups from emerging markets. And I think for our audience, it would be great to hear maybe one or two examples that really impressed you. So can you give us some examples that you said, okay, that's a great startup. I really like what they are doing. Oh, this is the worst question <laughs> because there are so many. We're industry agnostics. So how do you even compare a story in healthcare versus uh, agriculture and then across region and across maturity? But if I have to be anecdotal with my last latest conversations, because <laughs> I think that's the fairest I can be, is I just spoke with one of the startups that we've invested in and that we support, Orcas in Egypt, which is a tutoring platform. They actually started off as kind of a matchmaking for babysitters. And then the, the founder launched again a second venture from all his learnings and has one of the bigger tutoring platforms in Egypt, which has grown exponentially, as you can imagine, due to the pandemic, where parents still needed a reliable source of education and coaching for their children. And the drive behind this entrepreneur and the mission, uh, it's, I think it's, that's what's always really inspiring. Every entrepreneur I meet has this unbelievable drive and passion for the bigger mission and vision of what they are trying to build. And it's really reassuring. You have a very a strong sense that everything is going to be okay when you meet all these entrepreneurs that fundamentally want to reshape the status quo in their regions and, and globally. It's stories like that that are part of the platform that we really believe in. And I assume like startups from emerging countries have very different challenges. I mean, a lot of challenges are in common, but very different challenges when you build a startup from Europe, for example. What are the biggest challenges you see in startups from emerging markets and how can you actually help them or how do you help them? The general challenges of launching a business is quite universal huh, in the capability of building a sustainable business. Where it differs is, of course, challenges related to the local legislation, like how complicated is it to start a business? How complicated is it to fail a business in that local context? So all these elements do complicate it more or less. And then where I see a major difference is when the companies scale, because it, let's be honest, technology, especially if you're in these kind of more business process innovation, and you're not necessarily heavily investing in, in a technology or an infrastructure, all these software businesses can be grown from anywhere around the world. Where you see the difference in, in the scale up is 
many times the gap in local talents. So you really have that issue of scaling your business in terms of talent, but also the fact that because depending on the industry you're working in, the infrastructure is non-existent. You have to build that whole value chain yourself. So you launch an e-commerce in Europe, you have the postal service that functions, you have warehouses available, you have great communications, people can pay online, they have credit card. I mean, you have more or less the whole infrastructure that is built so that you can just sell that product. Whereas in these markets, you have to integrate all these elements. And so it becomes suddenly much more costly, the scale-up phase, but also it can increase the entry to barriers for competitors. And then depending on the maturity of the ecosystem and the size of the market, there are, of course, the challenges faced to fundraising. I mean, it's also representative to the pool of potential investments, to the exit opportunities. That is also very limiting. I think Seedstars, when I was trying to do a research on and I was talking to a lot of folks within the community as well, somewhere I felt that it has empathy at the core as well, especially when you talk to a lot of folks you feel, you know, they understand you better, they are inclusive, they are much more nicer to you as well, as opposed to a very high growth tech startup, right, where the ecosystem is full throttle, like, you know, the pressure is there from the investors, obviously, they may be very uh, empathetic at their heart, but because of the external pressures, they have to operate in a certain way, right? So do you think you can use empathy as a force multiplier in your um, ecosystem, primarily to scale it up? Of course, there is no mathematics around it, but because if that's an element where many people can relate to, and that is not available at a lot of other places as well, do you think that could be used going forward as a force multiplier as well in every action or every touch point with Seedstars? It's interesting because I don't know, I would prefer to see the proof that empathy leads to success of the entrepreneurs and the ecosystem. I think it's just temperament of the culture that we are. I think that's how we do business. I mean, we we really represent 50 nationalities. I mean, we are different backgrounds. We're trying to do a work which is not easy and we know it's long-term. We try to be inclusive of all types of talents and personalities and backgrounds. So I think you do need that level of empathy just to work well together. But I don't know if it, it, it needs to be a must We're working more and more with research institutions to understand what are the key success factors in scaling high growth ventures. I like to know if that would be one critical success factor or not. It's nice to hear. I don't want it to be just nice to hear. I I would love for it to be related to the impact. And we always felt like we were the underdogs, you know, it may be in the development philanthropy space, we were never these big institutions, development banks. And when we would tell them the work we did, it was because, like, I come from a country where I didn't get this type of education, or I didn't get this type of opportunity. That's how our talents speak. And I think that's really powerful because that experience beats any statistics in the end of what needs to be done in these markets. You have a very unique spectrum of experience across diverse ecosystems. Like you have lived in Silicon Valley, right? So you understand the Valley economics. You understand how many of the startups operating out of the Valley. And on the other side, you have also lived in Lagos. You have lived in Singapore. So you have a very holistic understanding about multiple VC ecosystems as well as entrepreneurial ecosystems. So I'm just curious, like Chamat in the Silicon Valley network always tells, right? Surprisingly, the globally... All, all capital flows is just concentrated to, let's say, 150 males somewhere. That's the reference he gives. 
So you are operating with a lot of VCs on a day-to-day basis, and you are also talking to entrepreneurs from all genders, all countries. Do you think that, you know, women entrepreneurs or women VCs have a different experience when they engage with a lot of other stakeholders? So we we tried to analyze kind of like what was the gap of women entrepreneurs within our competitions, our training programs and investment portfolio. And we're quite representative, unfortunately, of what's taking place the rest of the world. So depending on country program maturity of the investment, we were representing between 10, 25 percent. And it's tough because there's so much related to the societal economic backgrounds of these regions. And it starts so early on that it's difficult to tackle that problem, to to change the statistics without looking at that systemic problem of why we don't have more women engineers, entrepreneurial opportunities, women represented in investor positions, etc., there's a lot to be done where we're trying to work on is we're again looking at the whole value chain from sourcing to investment. Are we being biased? Because the startup world is very male driven, okay, by the investment flow and also the talent. So where are we being biased? Are we missing out on networks? Should we be changing our lexic? Does startup even mean something in many countries and many networks where they're potential high growth ventures, but we're not dressing to them. Should we change the format of how we source our deal flow? Pitching is very aggressive. Should we change the language? So there are a lot of these experiments that we're trying to integrate and reflect on to see if we can be a better representation and also an experiment pool of showcasing the performance of such portfolio of women-led enterprises. But it definitely also goes by the fact that you need more women represented in the investment decision because it's simply trying to render more diversified your decision-making approach, which we think is smart. So there's a strong conviction that for our second fund, for example, we want it to be 50-50 in terms of gender equity, not to raise money from specific funds or LPs, but because we think if we target that, it's also because we want the most performing team to make those investment decisions. Sure. I think you reference to women-led enterprises and in these pandemic times, somehow the women-led countries have performed or outperformed better really as well. Yeah. I think Silicon Valley uh, ecosystem somehow thrives on hyper growth, right? So even if you are building a social enterprise, the impact investors have a different KPI for many of companies operating in those ecosystems. You would have spoken to a lot of impact investors over the last few years, right? Do you foresee that the approach impact investors are following in over the last one or two years is very different from what it was like 10 years back. Now it is much more forward thinking and, you know, they can hold on for the number of years to more than seven to 10 years as well. Yeah, I think the global impact investor network does these kind of yearly studies on the asset under management related to impact investment. And we're seeing it grow every year. We're seeing it become part of the communication strategy of many banks and wealth managers. So we're we're seeing this shift. We're seeing it because so many I mean, Geneva and and Switzerland is still a big global hub for private wealth. And so we're seeing a lot of family offices, high network come to us asking if they can better understand also impact investment. It's still very, very risky for many institutions, but we're, I think more and more we'll see more interesting financial products that will attract a larger pool of investors. 
we see definitely a certain part of the investors becoming more and more professional and creative in how they approach the financial mechanisms in which they support and invest these businesses. So that's great. And we ourselves also need to continue and be creative and agile to react and find the most appropriate vehicle for the different markets. But I mean, it's still small compared to, to the needed allocation and it will take some more time. And what was also good to see was over time philanthropy. So like pure, like foundations are becoming more and more interested in doing equity and going into much more the private sector approach of investing in, in sustainable businesses. So that I think has also allowed much more risk taking in approaching such investment opportunities huh? because they're ultimately willing to take the highest risk with some development institutions and, and whatnot. So that has helped also, I think, test out and experiment on different approaches and different types of talents and portfolio. Last last year, you were having your global events in Switzerland itself. This year, is it in the month of May? Yeah, so we have uh, next week, we start with the boot camp, which is kind of the annual gathering of the of the startups, the finalists, our different delegations. And then on the 20th of May, we have the online summit broadcasted. Awesome. So is it open for all? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where we'll be announcing the winner of the grand finale. Absolutely. Excellent. So we'll request all our listeners to join. <laughs> and uh, my uh, concluding question to you would be, Alizy, could you inspire our listeners by telling us some of the books that have inspired you over the last few years or some of the novels that you really read once in a while? Maybe your source of inspiration. Recently with the team, we reread Good to Great. And it was a great source of reflection and reminder on what we needed to focus on. We also, so I'm a big fan of Michelle Obama, which is kind of a shame because so many people are a fan of her. I would have loved to have this very niche person in mind, but uh, her book was, was good. I prefer some of her interviews, but that was a good read. And then what else did? There's also one called The Human Networks. And I felt that was really interesting, reflecting kind of before saying that we're the sum of uh, the people that surround you and that you really need to find the right people. It really explains the power of human networks. And if we do it well, also that diversification of the crowd and decentralization of the authority does allow us to bring to wisdom of the crowd. So all that kind of knowledge on how networks work and also reflecting on the power of the Seed Stars community and what we need to build I think was a great read. Thank you, Alice. It was lovely talking to you. And besides the Swiss chocolates and the neutrality, you know, I understood a lot of uh, your view as well, which is very unique, definitely very unique. Thank you so much for your time as well. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for having me.